so you can go ahead and start turning to Second Chronicles. And why don't we pray to settle ourselves in. Father, we, uh, we do thank you for uh, the many things that are, are coming up, going on uh, in these next few months. Father, we are uh, excited uh, for Ravi and his arrival here at the Mercer County area and the way in which you're going to use him. Lord, not only to impact people that will be associated with Calvary Chapel, Mercer County, but Lord, we think of the 30 different churches and ministries that are enthusiastically uh, supporting uh, this endeavor. Lord, we thank you for the problem of outgrowing uh, a, a venue uh, and having to, to figure out alternatives, Lord, so as many people that want to see and bring friends to will be able to. And so, Father, we ask that you would continue to watch over and bless Dr. Zacharias, Lord, that you would protect him, particularly uh, his throat, his speaking voice, as well as his, uh, his back and uh, the problems that he has with his back. Just protect him, keep him, bring him here safely, as well as the other... Uh, engagements, Lord, on his calendar, and use him, Lord. Father, I ask that you would use this event to stir up the followers of Christ in the Mercer County community, that you would give us a greater passion for the lost in our lives, Lord, that we would honestly care for the eternal uh, destiny of those people whom we say we love. Father, bless these efforts. Lord, we pray for these Koinonia dinners, Lord, and we thank you for the unity that you are developing here at Calvary and pray that you would continue to do a great work, Lord, that this place would become the true refuge that our souls need, not just on a Sunday, but every day of the week. Lord, as, you continue to, as we continue to invest into these relationships, Lord, we ask that your spirit would knit our hearts together as one. And Father, as we look into your word, Lord, we know that there are so many things that are going on in our hearts and our minds that could have the effect of distracting us or hindering what it is we're going to receive from you. Lord, just for a few moments this morning, we want to put those aside. And we ask that your spirit would bless and anoint this time in such a way Lord, that there would have been no doubt that we've come into the presence of a holy God and we've heard his voice. So, Lord, we invite you to speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Okay, when we were last together, uh, we did the first 13 verses of chapter 1. Uh, chapter 1 primarily having to do with the fact that Solomon now is the new king of Israel. David had been the king for 40 years, 33 years exactly, uh, but 40 years total when you include the time down in Judah. Uh, and now he is passed off the scene, and, and the passage said, it began in verse 1, and it said that the son of David, Solomon, was established in his kingdom. There were no more questions as to who was going to be the king, no rival kings were going to rise up. No other brothers or sons of David were going to try and establish themselves as king. Solomon was the king. And we saw because God chose him to be the king. Young man, I actually, I've been telling you about 20. I heard one preacher say he may have been as young as 12. Uh, and he became the king of the nation. And uh, nonetheless, he was a young, inexperienced man who God chose and got equipped to be the king. And we saw as we began the chapter that Solomon's, one of his first acts was to go to Gibeon, that city only about eight miles away from Jerusalem, and to reunite the tabernacle, that portable temple, with the Ark of the Covenant. And he goes and he does that, and it's while he is there that God comes and he meets with him some evening. Whether he's dreaming or it's a vision, we don't necessarily know, but God meets with him and he simply says to him, you can have anything you want, just ask. And Solomon, we recall, he asked for wisdom. 
And we saw how that greatly pleased the Lord. And the Lord said, I'm not only, in verse 11 and 12, I'm not only going to give you wisdom, but I'm going to bless you with riches and possessions and honor such as no king has ever had before or ever will have again. Now, as we move on to verse 14, we begin to see the fulfillment of that promise to Solomon. So if you look at verse 14 and following, it reads this way. It says, Now Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stone. And he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kew, and the king's traders would buy them from Kew for a price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150 shekels. Likewise, through them, these were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and to the kings of Syria. Now, in these three verses, three or four verses, we have three indicators of the great wealth that Solomon was beginning to enjoy. Uh, Number one is found in verse 14, and that's the chariots and the horsemen that it speaks of there. So the fact that he was able to acquire 600 shekels for a chariot, uh, 150, I think it said, there for a horse. The fact that he was able to acquire all these is an indicator of his wealth. The second indicator of his wealth is found in verse 15, which speaks of the silver and the gold uh, and even the cedar. Um, from Lebanon there, as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. Now, notice it says that the silver and the gold was as common in Jerusalem as stone. Now, for those of you that uh, have gone to Jerusalem, or if you've seen pictures, you know that uh, there are many, many stones in the city of Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, the the city of Jerusalem has a modern ordinance that if you're going to build a building in Jerusalem, the face of the building must be of Jerusalem stone. It is just that plentiful. And just outside of the city, on the the many hills that encircle the city, you see the quarries working nonstop that are producing stone to build these cities because the city is rapidly expanding uh, outward. And all of these buildings are covered with stone. So imagine, here it says, it's as common as uh, in Jerusalem as the stone. Imagine how much silver and gold that speaks of. It's said of Solomon, Solomon was said to have jet black hair, like really, really dark, silky kind of, black hair and it's said that they would ground gold up into fine dust and sprinkle it in his hair for each day like kind of the start of the day and he would kind of go on his way that's how much gold that they had in this particular city imagine how much that is and then if you look at verses 16 and 17 this is again a demonstration of the overabundance of wealth that solomon is able to pass because it says there that he he began to import the horses and then kind of trade them off the other to other people the idea of that is that he had more than he could possibly even need. And so now he begins to kind of trade those off uh, to other people. Solomon is indeed very, very wealthy at this particular point in time. And it's with that wealth that he will begin to establish the kingdom of Israel, expand it outward. Again, during Solomon's reign, the nation of Israel expanded its borders to the closest to the promise that was originally given to Abraham that the nation of Israel has ever experienced. And it's, it was the furthest that... Uh, they were ever able to expand outward. The current borders of Israel are nowhere near the borders that were promised to Abraham. I believe there will be a day that they will be, as we see our, um, our king, Jesus, reigning on the throne. They will certainly expand their borders outward. Well, anyhow, Solomon, verses 14 through 17, very, very wealthy. Now, if you're familiar with the life of Solomon, 
then you know that the end of Solomon's life was not as noble as the beginning of Solomon's life, where he asked God for wisdom and understanding. And I heard one preacher say this. He said, Solomon asked for wisdom to govern the nation, but he failed to seek wisdom to govern his own life. And again, if you're familiar with Solomon, that you know that he was able to amass all sorts of things. He was able to amass wealth, which he spent exorbitantly upon himself. He was able to amass women, acquiring over 300 wives and 700 concubines. I don't get it. You know, one's enough. Uh, I like my wife a lot. Um, Exotic experiences. Uh, We read that he was able to enjoy. It doesn't matter. What's it cost? It doesn't matter. Just bring it on. I want to try it out. All these sorts of things. And if you... Uh, And he gathers all these things up, and eventually this is what all of that led him to declare. It's found in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it says, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What's the use? Why bother? Who cares anymore? Here was a man, literally, you might look at him and say, this is a guy on the edge of committing suicide. Because he went through all of these things, and he realized, useless. Useless. Why even bother anymore? Now, I bring it up at this point. Because I think, I wonder, I should say, if verse 14 might be the start of the downward spiral of Solomon's life. Remember, he began very well. Lord, give me wisdom to govern this thy great people. And he did not ask for wisdom for his uh, personal life. And I wonder if verse 14 is the beginning of that downward spiral. Again, look at verse 14. It says, Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen, 1,400 chariots, 1,200 horsemen, and so on. Now, this passage here in Second Chronicles doesn't say anything about that being right or wrong. It just kind of gives you the information. This is what the man did. We do, however, have another place in the Scripture that does speak to this issue. It doesn't mention Solomon's name, but it does speak to this issue. And this is found back in Deuteronomy 17, 600 years or so before Solomon would even come upon the earth. And it says this in Deuteronomy 17. It's a section, in my Bible at least, that is labeled, Laws Concerning Israel's Kings. Israel didn't even have a king yet, but God anticipated that, and he wrote this particular section through Moses. And there, you can see in verses seven, chapter 17, it says, One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you, only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Where did Solomon's horses come from? Egypt in this place called Q. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest he turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive amounts of silver and gold, including dust that you drop into your hair. You know, so I wonder, the passage doesn't specifically say it, but the scripture seems to be very, very clear. That this is where Solomon's, the direction of his life, his personal life, begins to go awry. Don't acquire wealth, don't acquire women, don't acquire these horses, the very things that Solomon is said to have done. And again, Solomon exercised great wisdom in his professional life, but he let his guard down in his personal life. And I think in doing so, he set himself up to be ensnared by the devil. How many of us, we got our professional life down? You know, we're, we're who we are at work, and everybody calls us Mr. or Mrs., and they're very proud, and they're very impressed with who we are and how we have all things together. But then we return home, and we let our guard down at home. And maybe our children are a mess, or our marriage is a mess, or our finances are a mess, or all these other sorts of things. How important it is to keep both our guard in our personal life as well as in our professional life. You know, in 1 John it says this, 
speaking about the ensnare of the or the snare of the devil, it says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions, it's not from the Father, but it is from the world. And we know that the God of this world, Satan, will use those things to trip you and I up. And so if you, you break it down and you look at Solomon's life here, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the wealth, the wives, the horses, the power the, uh, that, that came with that and associated with that, it gets him into trouble. Now, as we move on, though, to chapter 2, you're going to see no reference to that trouble. Because the book of Second Chronicles, the purpose of Second Chronicles is not to air anyone's dirty laundry. When we looked at First Chronicles and we look at Saul, King Saul, there's one chapter that mentions King Saul, and it just speaks of that he was a king and how he died. No mention of the almost 15, 16 chapters that are found in the book of First Samuel that speaks of all the things that he messed up. No mention of that in First Chronicles. We have mention of David many times, much of the book. Remember, 26 of the 29 chapters of First Chronicles are devoted to the life of David. No mention of his sin of uh, adultery and his sin of murder. And the only reason we have mention of the sin of the census taking that David had to take, the only reason we have mention of that is because it was as a result of those circumstances that they bought the plot of ground that the temple would be on. And the temple was a point that they were going to be addressing and looking at, and so you have to mention the census there. But the book of First and Second Chronicles, their purpose is not to air the dirty laundry of these guys. And so we don't have any information really here on Solomon's sin here. We do have record of Solomon's greatest accomplishment, and that is the building of the temple of God. And so I think, if I remember correctly, the first nine chapters of this book are going to deal with the building of the temple and Solomon's role in, in that process. I think the first seven or so chapters specifically deal with the temple, whereas the next couple deal with his life and his death uh, and so on. So let's look here as we talk about the temple. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 2, it said, Now Solomon purposed to build a temple for the name of the Lord and then a royal palace for himself. If you read a little bit further, what you'll discover is that Solomon would, would spend seven years building the temple, 13 years building his own palace. But some people look at that and you're like, oh man, that's wrong. You know, you spend more time building your own house. I, I think that's the wrong way to look at it. I don't think it's a matter of I spent more time building my house and, and uh, that means it's better than the temple. I think the idea was he was focused, get this temple done, got that done, and then kind of in the leftover time was building his particular palace. But either way, it says that the pur- he purposed to build a temple. This word purpose is to vow. It's to set your heart to a particular task. And in this case, the task we're speaking of is the temple. Now to do that, he would need to gather all sorts of materials, and he would have to gather many laborers to do this. As I said later, this was going to become, we'll see later, this was going to become a seven-year building project. That's a lot of laborers and a lot of materials that would need. Let's start looking at verse 2. Solomon begins with the manpower, and it says, Now Solomon assigned 70,000 men to bear burdens and 80,000 to quarry in the hill country and another 3,600 to oversee them. That's the manpower that would build this uh, magnificent structure. Looking on to verse 3, he begins by talking of the materials. And it says, Now Solomon sent word to Hiram, the king of Tyre, as you have dealt with David my father and sent him cedar to build himself a house to dwell in, so also deal with me. Behold, I am about to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, 
and dedicated to him for the burning of incense of sweet spices before him and for the arrangement of the showbread and for the burnt offerings morning and evenings on the Sabbaths and the new moons and the appointed feast of the Lord our God as ordained forever for Israel. The house that I am to build will be great for our God is greater than all gods. But who is able to build a house since heaven, even the highest heaven, cannot contain him? Who am I to build a house for him? except as a place to make offerings before him. So, now send me a man skilled to work in gold, silver, bronze, and iron, and in purple, crimson, and blue fabrics, trained also in engraving to be skilled workers who are with me in Judah and Jerusalem, whom David my father provided. Send me also cedar, cypress, and algum timber from Lebanon, for I know that your servants know how to cut timber in Lebanon. And my servants will be with your servants to prepare the timber for me in abundance. For the house that I am to build will be great, and it will be wonderful. And I will give for your servants the woodsmen who cut timber, 20,000 cores of crushed wheat, 20,000 cores of barley, 20,000 baths of wine, and 20,000 baths of oil. Now, going back in verse 2, we have mentioned, I think it's actually verse 3, we have mention of Hiram. Hiram, the king of Tyre. Some of your versions, his name is spelled with a U, so it's Huram, I guess you might say. We're talking about the same particular fellow here. And this guy was the king of a city that was called Tyre. Now, Tyre is located about 12 miles north of Israel. So if you think of Israel uh, today, you know directly north of Israel is the small little country of Lebanon. Uh, Back then, they also called it Lebanon, but it was a lot larger than what it is today. There's a city that is off the coast of, if you want to call it northern Israel, that's a peninsula city. It, in reality, it is such a narrow peninsula, it's actually an island city that is located right off of the coast there of what is today Lebanon. And it was this city, and you can see it on a map here how close it is to Jerusalem. It's just about 12 miles north of Israel. Forty times the city of Tyre. Many times it's referred to as Tyre and Sidon. Even Jesus references Tyre and Sidon. Uh, so about 40 different times in the Scripture this particular city is mentioned. And Hiram was the most successful king of this kingdom. So he's kind of like a Solomon or a David for his particular uh, nation. We know, passage here and in other places, he had a great relationship with David. It seems as if he provided all sorts of stuff for David or to David without charging David anything. We see here in verse 10 that he does charge Solomon for these things, and they work out an agreement where essentially uh, Solomon is going to exchange food in response for the lumber as well as the workers uh, that are going to come. So David, uh, Hiram, eventually Solomon, they're allies, they're neighbors, and they're trading partners. Look at verse 14.1. I'm sorry, uh, in 1 Chronicles 14.1, in reference to David, it says, And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, as well as cedar trees and masons and carpenters, all to build a house for David. Now Solomon appeals to him and essentially says to him, yo, hook me up like you hooked my dad up. Now, I don't think that's the original uh, necessarily. I think the exact words are in verse 3 where he says, as you dealt with David, my father, and you sent him cedar to build himself a house to dwell in, so deal with me. And again, going back to verse 4, which we read, but we'll look at again, he then explains to him, the reason I want all these things is this is why, verse 4, I'm about to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. I'm going to build a temple. 
and it's going to be a great structure. And so the cedars of Lebanon, which are renowned uh, for their ability to build with, we need that. And you live in Lebanon, so can you please send that? I like verse 6 because I think verse 6 is an indication of Solomon's theology. And I think it's important for you and I as well. Notice the question that Solomon rhetorically asks in verse 6. He says, who's able to build a house since, for God since heaven, even the highest heaven, cannot contain him? Solomon knew what I think a lot of us forget today, that God cannot be contained in some building. And how often, even it says the highest of heavens cannot contain him, but yet how often in our practical theology, there's one thing we believe, but then there's our practical theology which we live upon, right? In our practical theology, how often do we actually limit God or act as if God is limited to a particular place? I think we do this, for instance, when we act as if one place is more holy than another place because this is God's house. And when we do that, aren't we limiting God then to a particular locale? So when we go into a particular place and we lower our voice and we begin to speak in these and thous, and we make sure that we don't curse because we're in God's house, aren't we making a serious mistake that thinking that God resides in this place and that when I go outside of these doors, then let it rip. And I can say what I really want to say and what's really coming out of my heart. I think that's a mindset that limits God to a particular place. And it assumes that everywhere else that God is absent. Or when we act as if a particular day of the week or a particular day of the year is more holy than another day for some reason. When our behavior is determined by the date on a calendar. When we say things like, well, I could never do that on a day like today. Today's a holy day. Come see me tomorrow when it's a normal day. You know, this sort of thinking here, that's a mistake. And I think in those instances, we're limiting God to a certain time or a certain place. Solomon never conceived that this temple was going to be a place where God would be able to be confined. Rather, they saw this temple as not being a place for God, but rather a place for the people of God where they could come and they could worship and they could offer up the incenses and the sacrifice, a place where they could offer up their adoration to God. It was a place for the people, not a place to contain God. And so I think it's an important reminder for us that though temples and churches and these things, they have their place, they play a significant role certainly in our lives, but they're never to be the only places where God is to be worshipped. Your decision to resist temptation and to seek the Lord for strength to overcome sin, whether that's in, let's say, your college dorm room, or it's home at your house, or it's at your place of business, when you make that decision, God, I'm going to honor you in this particular place, that is just as much of an act of worship as going to some church or going to some temple and offering up the sacrifices. And I think each of us would be wise to cultivate a mindset that God is in this place and to seek him in those particular places, to worship him in those places. And I think the overall result would be an increase. Uh, an increasing degree of the amount of closeness that we are enjoying with God in our relationship with him. So we cultivate the mindset that God is in this place. Now, let's talk a little bit about the temple. Over the next six, seven weeks or so, we're going to be reading a lot about the temple and the stuff that is in the temple and what goes on at the temple and so on. And I, I think there is certainly the literal This is what's going on. This is what they did, the history. I'll share that information with you as we come to it. But I think there's also symbolic ways that you can look at the temple as well. 
how does this information that I'm learning about here from 3,000 years ago, how does it apply to my life today? And so some of the symbolic ways, and I, actually I think there's three different, maybe more, three different symbolic ways which you may hear me sort of reference the temple. One is that I think the temple can be viewed as sort of a foreshadowing of the incarnate work of Christ, incarnate uh, coming in the flesh, Jesus coming in the flesh of the Lord Jesus. So when we read in the temple, or when we read in the New Testament, I should say, that it says that Jesus is the light of the world, we make our comparisons to the temple or the tabernacle where it speaks of uh, the candlesticks that are there that are offering light to the priest in the work that they are doing. Jesus is the light of the world. The lampstands provided the light of the temple. When we read of the veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place, we know in the New Testament that the veil had to be torn so that access to the presence of God would be granted to us as believers. We also know in the New Testament the concept that Jesus himself, his body, had to be torn. His body had to be broken to grant access for you and I into the presence. So that's sort of one symbolic way that we can look at it is sort of the temple as a foreshadowing of the incarnate work of the Lord Jesus. A second way I think that the temple uh, can be viewed is as a picture of our makeup as individual believers. You as an individual believer. If you look at the temple or the tabernacle, it was basically three rooms. One was sort of an outer courtyard. Then you had two rooms on the interior. There was the holy place, and then the veil, and then the most holy places. So, place, I should say. So there was basically three sections to the, temp- uh, the temple or the tabernacle. Similarly, our bodies, our makeup, is made up of three. We are made up of body, we are made up of soul, and we are made up of spirit. As the outer courtyard of the temple was sort of visible to everybody, so was your outer courtyard. So was your body. And everyone takes notice, they observe, they see who you are and what you are. And there's an importance to uh, nurturing your outer body, physical exercise, that sort of thing. But if that alone makes up who you are, then you're missing a whole lot of what God intended. And similarly, God didn't design that the people would just simply gather outside in the courtyard, but there was a place for people to go deeper. And the deeper place, the priests would move into the uh, interior, and first they would go into the holy place. And I think the holy place, you might say, represents the soul. That aspect of who you are, your emotions, your feelings, your thoughts. You know, everybody can observe you from the outside, but it's who you give access to that has the ability to come in and open up in your relationship and know what your emotions are, what your thoughts are, what your feelings are. And that's a very important aspect of our lives that needs to be nurtured and needs to be developed. One of the reasons, for instance, for these koinonia dinners that we're doing. But then there's one more room in the interior, and that's the most holy place. And only one person can go in there, and that's the high priest. And I think that represents our spirits, our ability to know God and relate with God. Only Jesus, that's only accessible by our high priest, the Lord Jesus. And so one of the ways you're going to hear me kind of speaking of the temple and making connections to our lives will be in this particular Uh, way comparing it to your life your body and so on there's a third way i think that the temple is a picture and that is a picture of the body of believers as the church whether it's calvary chapel mercer county here on a sunday morning or it's the church greater that is meeting all over the world uh, today or last evening uh, its idea and and that comes from first peter chapter two where it says you yourselves like living stones you the church there are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. And so you'll hear references made in that way as well. So uh, I'd encourage you as you're reading ahead each week, anticipate 
Try to figure out, what's he going to talk about this week? This guy, he goes everywhere. You know, what's he going to be speaking on? And see if you can write your own sermon, so to speak. It's a good way for you to um, do some pre-study before entering in. Now, let's continue here. Continuing on our passage this morning, Solomon said in verse 6, Who am I to build a house except for a place to make offerings? So now send me a man skilled to work in gold, silver, bronze, uh, etc., purple, crimson, blue fabrics, trained in engraving, Someone that will be a skilled worker with us here in Judah and Jerusalem, along with the people my father has provided. And then send me, you know, all this other stuff here. He says, this is going to be a great house in verse 5 here. And I think that God deserves our very best. I'm not saying, you know, our house has to be, our, our church building or whatever it may be, has to be perfect here. But too often, God kind of gets the leftovers. Hey, we were throwing this thing away anyway. Do you want it at the church? You know, this sort of thing. Because the garbage men charged me a fee to pick it up. Could you take it off our hands? This sort of thing. You can keep your garbage. No offense. Uh, You know, this sort of thing. But sometimes God just gets the leftovers, doesn't he? The leftovers of the things we don't want anymore, God can have it. The leftovers of our time and all these sorts of things. God deserves our very best. And Solomon is establishing here from the start, we're not going to just find, you know, driftwood off the side in in the garbage dump over here. We're going to build him a house that is worthy of his name. So God deserves our very best. So he petitions for these particular things here. And, but he also says, I need a laborer. I need somebody that can come he, in here that is skilled to work in gold and in silver and in bronze and in iron and in blue and in crimson and in purple fabric and all these sorts of things. I need a guy that can do engraving. He essentially says, I'm looking for a guy that can basically do everything perfectly. You got one of those there up in Tyre? And if you look at verse 11, Hiram responds, as a matter of fact, we do have one of those. We got a fellow, we'll send him down. Look at verse 11, he says, uh, So Hiram said, Because the Lord loves his people, he has made you king over them. He also said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who made heaven and earth, who has given King David a wise son, who has discretion and understanding, who will build a temple for the Lord and a royal palace for him. And then he goes on in verse 13, he says, And I have sent a skilled man who has understanding. You know, the, the letter begins... And it says, you're awesome, you're great, you're wonderful. You ever apply to colleges and get rejected from colleges? How many of you have applied to colleges and got rejected? Okay, just about all of mine I did. Um, but, you know, Ryder was having some program where they let the poor fellows in from town to go or something or another, and they let me get into there. Uh, so I ended up at Ryder University. Um, but you, when you get those letters back, you know in the first paragraph whether you're in or you're out. Because it begins and it says uh, something like, dear person, it is with regret, and you're like, oh, crumb. You know, and you throw that away. You don't even read the rest of it. And your mom reads it just to make sure. You know? <laughs> but, if you get, but if you get one that says, my man Solomon, or something like that, you know, so glad you reached out to me, we're delighted, then you know I'm in. And you don't even have to read the rest of that necessarily. So here, this letter comes, and it says, blessed be the Lord God. He's, he's blessed Israel with such a great ruler like yourself. Solomon knows I'm in. And he goes on again in verse 13. He says, I'm going to send a guy by the name of Huram Abi here, very similar to the name of the king himself, but this particular guy here. It goes on, he says, he's the son of a woman of the daughters of Dan. He's a fa- his father was a man of Tyre. Now this fella, the daughters of Dan, Dan was the northernmost tribe of Israel, small little tribe at the top. If you're familiar with your map of Africa, you know that little teeny country that is at the top there whose name I can't think of right now? But you got all these big nations like Egypt and Libya. I'll look it up for the next service. But anyway, you got all these big nations, that little teeny one there. I think it's Tunisia, if I recall. Well, that's sort of what Dan is. 
Henry says, yes, I'm correct. All right, so that's what Dan was. It was this tiny little spot up at the top of Israel there, a small little tribe there. And remember, Tyre is right at the north of Israel. The city's only 12 miles away from the northernmost cities of Israel. And so the people of Dan and the people of Tyre were interacting, it seems here. And so this man is born from a woman of the daughters of Dan and from a man of the the city there of Tyre. And finishing up chapter 2, we read these verses. It says, And then Solomon counted all the resident aliens, verse 17, who were in the land of Israel, after the census of them that David his father had taken, and there were found 153,600 men, 70,000 of them assigned to bear the burdens, 80,000 to quarry in the hill country, and 36,000 as overseers to make the people work. 153,600 men. That took seven years to build this building. Can you imagine the workforce and the labor that was going on in this particular place? Surely the structure was magnificent. Now, if we move on to, verse, to chapter 3, I want to read the first seven verses, but then I only want to talk about one of those verses. It says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, or Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. He began to build in the second month of the fourth year of his reign, and these are Solomon's measurements for building the house of God. The length in cubits of the old standard was 60 cubits, the breadth 20 cubits. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and its height 120 cubits. He overlaid it on the inside with pure gold. The nave he lined with cypress, and he covered it with fine gold, and he made palms and chains upon it. He adorned the house with settings of precious stones. The gold was gold from Parvaim, so he lined the house with gold, its beams, its thresholds, its walls, and its doors, and he carved cherubim upon the walls. Now, Solomon will begin building this house in the fourth year of his reign. First Kings tells us that it took him seven years to complete. So First Kings reads, In the fourth year the foundation of the house was laid in the month of Ziv. In the eleventh year, in the month of Vul, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts according to its specification. So it took seven years to build this particular structure. Now, the, the point I want to draw your attention to, I said we're going to read the first seven verses, and then I want to draw your attention to one verse. Actually, I want to draw your attention to one phrase and one word of that phrase, and that's found in verse 1, because, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 1, because it says, Then Solomon began to build the house. Now, chapter 2 began with the words, you can look back in your Bibles, it began with the words, Now Solomon purposed to build a house or a temple. Chapter 3, verse 1, Then Solomon began. Most of us are really good. We're experts in purposing. We're experts in determining, in vowing to do something, especially as it pertains to our walk with Christ. So how many times have you and I said, you know what, starting tomorrow, I'm going to start to have a daily quiet time with the Lord. Every day I'm going to take a little bit of time and I'm going to meet with him in prayer and in his word. Or maybe you said something like, you know what, I'm going to start volunteering at the church. I'm going to start volunteering in our local community. I'm going to look outside of myself and begin to care for some other people in one way or another. Or maybe you said, you know what, there's an area of my life that I'm just tired of playing around with, an area of sin. And I'm going to purpose, I'm going to vow, I'm going to determine to put that area of sin out of my life. You see, you and I, we're really good at purposing. 
But oftentimes, we're not as good at following through. It's one thing to determine to do something. It's an entirely different thing to begin to make application and to follow through in that particular area. Let me encourage you this morning, and myself, God calls us to be doers of the word. Again, in, we've read it before, but in James chapter 1, a, word, a verse, I know that verse, Greg. Well, let me read it again let God speak to our hearts. It says, be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his face in a mirror. He looks at himself, and then he goes away, and at once he has forgotten what he has looked like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. When God pricks your conscience to the point that you say, you know what, I'm going to, and you finish that off in whatever way that you finish it off, then I want to encourage you to follow through. God wants to bless us. He wants to be in an intimacy of relationship. He wants to grow us. He wants to take us from this place that we were when he found us and he dusted us off and he called us his son and he wants to bring us on a process and he wants to grow us. We call that sanctification. It's the process that takes place during our life here upon the earth between when he gave us life and when we go to heaven. That process in between is called sanctification. And the way that God does it, he doesn't just say, blame, you got it, you're done. But he begins to work on us. He begins to speak to us. He begins to challenge us. You know, you have a bad tendency with that, Greg. You should deal with that. I know I should. And then we never do. So he wants to change us. He wants to grow us. So whether it's something that God is saying, you know what, you need to stop doing that. And there were times, especially early on in my walk, where there were things I had to stop doing. Or God was saying, that doesn't glorify me. That doesn't honor me. That does you no good, Greg. And God began to work on my heart, and I had to stop doing things. And then there were other times in my life, still to this day, there's things I have to stop, but there were other times in my life where God was working on my heart and he's saying, you know, you need to start doing this particular thing. As Paul would say in the New Testament, put off the old man, put on the new. There were things I had to put away. There were things I needed to put on. And God knows when he pricks our heart about those things that every one of those areas that he is working on our hearts about is going to improve our relationship with him. You know, I was reminded this week from a friend who sent me a text. I was reminded that there was only one disciple of Christ in history that we know of that walked upon the water, and that was Peter. And as God came, Jesus came there upon the water of the Sea of Galilee, and and the people on the boat saw him there, an interaction developed between Jesus and this person that is out there walking on the sea. And Peter, I don't know why, but Peter said to him, if it's you, command me to come out there upon the water. And God pricked his heart. He pricked his conscience when Jesus said to him, come on out. Now Peter had to make a decision. I can sit here in this boat where I know what life is going to be like. I'm comfortable here. We'll struggle through whatever it may be. But at least I'm here on the boat on solid ground, so to speak. Or I can obey the voice of the Lord. And I can put my foot over the side of this boat. And I can put all my weight on that foot that is out there upon the water. And I can begin to walk. And there's been only one disciple in the history of the church that we know of that has walked upon the water. And that's Peter. And why did he walk upon the water? Because he believed. He didn't just purpose. He didn't just vow. But he followed through. And he began to build. Another place where, Peter, where Jesus said to Peter, take your boat out and cast your net again. 
And Peter said, oh, I don't feel like going out there again. He says, but upon your word, I'll do it. And he went out and he did it. And God blessed him in a very, very powerful way. Good intentions are wonderful. But if none of these things lead to action, honestly, what value is in there in having good intentions? What value is there even, quite honestly, in coming to church on a Sunday morning, letting God prick your heart, and then doing nothing in response to that? What value is there in that? Let God change us, right? We all want to be changed. We all want to grow. That's why we're up. There's lots of things we could be doing on a Sunday morning. Probably more interesting and exciting than gathering to see me. All right? And so I'd encourage you, if God is working on your heart, let him change you. Respond. Now, here's your first step. All right, I'll respond. All right? Before you leave this building, you need to tell one person what God is doing on your heart. God, this is, or friend, this is what God kind of, and I'm telling you, so that next week when you see me, I'll realize I need to follow through, and all week I'll be motivated to follow through on that particular thing. Amen? Anybody? Okay. Thank God. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you. Uh, Lord, you love us. Lord, you could have left us alone. You could have just said, ah, you're good enough. But Lord, you love us. You desire good things for us. You want to see us grow. You want to see us be changed. And Lord, how amazing would it be if the hundred or so people that are gathered here right now, Lord, each would begin turning to one another and saying, this is what God's doing in my life and what I want to see him do. And Lord, then over this next week, Lord, sanctification was occurring in a hundred lives, Lord. Oh, how you would bless this church if you did that. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that the word is not to make us feel comfortable or happy or pleased or good, nice little feelings. But Lord, your word is there. It challenges us. And Father, we confess as believers here, we want to be challenged. We want to be more like you. We want to be changed into your image, transformed from the inside out. So Father, uh, Would you bless, would you hear that prayer, and would you do that work within our lives, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray.